welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is episode 257. This is your host and producer, Poochie. <laughs> Around the table with me, I have Ezra. Hi, guys. Oh, Poochie. <laughs> I love the name. I'm wearing my hat backwards today. You are yeah. Poochie today. I am the real Poochie. That's right. Not just silent producer. Got Greg. Hi. And Paul. Hey. Good to be here. Glad you're here. Where's Jeff? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think Jeff is at his kid's um, camp, like grade seven camp. Oh, he's on daddy duty. Yeah. Hmm. Good times. Hope he's having good a good time. Times. Hey, Jeff, if you're listening to this, which you won't be. But if you are. But if you are, I hope you had a good time, man. <laughs> We're looking forward to hearing stories about it at the office and such. Mm. All right. I have to make a reminder. Last week, we awarded a listener with a book, a signed copy of Thinking, Answering Life's Five Biggest Questions. That was hard to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it hasn't been picked up yet. What? And our our winner was uh, Lisa Bolt with an email, uh, lisamarine at gmail.com. So email her and tell her to come pick yes, up her I book. Yes, I did. But I'm reminding uh, on air once again that we have a signed copy of Thinking Series at so, the office for you. So you just decided to give out this person's email address <laughs> <laughs> for the purpose of her knowing so that she she's well, the want, Lisa I, Bolt who sent in the answer to the question. I want one. the community to come around and send her emails and be like, come to the church, get okay, your book. Okay. She might get like this 800 is a signed emails. Copy. Go get your book. Exactly. <laughs> Go get your book. I mean, you think they would want a signed copy of, of Thinking. If they, Maybe not. If they, you, well, they sent in the answer to the question, so they're can obviously... Can you imagine the, uh, yeah. spam this girl? Oh, we knew. Yeah, it was it was announced that this was the prize, right? Yes. Yeah, so if you don't want the prize, then don't answer the question. It's true. It's like the right. opposite of if you don't but, do but, the But what time. if what if she owns the book? Because I think Andy had an apologetics conference you think? Uh, two years ago, I think. <laughs> I think so too. Yes. Dude. And he gave the book thinking. Yeah, at that apologetics conference, so answering life's So you're saying questions. she's like, meh, I don't want the book. I'm just gonna let them talk about it on air for weeks on end. But you think she would want it to maybe sell it on Craigslist for a hefty profit? That's right. A signed, signed copy, copy by who the knows great. how What's much her name? that will be Lisa? worth. Lisa, 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 come pick up your book. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Um, the first question we have in today has to do with honor-shame culture. Uh, so the question is, what is the honor-shame culture? And are there positive things about it that we can implement in the Western world? I think honor-shame culture would be... Um, so, for example, I come from the third world, from Africa, and you will find the community, um, an individual within a community... W- your behavior, your your actions have a direct impact to the community where you live. And so for me, for instance, um, I wouldn't want to go out and just live my life this way and that way with absolutely no concern uh, about my actions. Because if I did that, that would reflect poorly to my family. It will uh, reflect poorly to my culture, my community, my village where I come from, and so on. So therefore, I wouldn't do that. 
so that I don't shame my family. So I would say that would be honor shame culture, basically, as I understand it, given that that's the background I come from. But here in North America, it is slightly different because I think there is honor shame here, but it's different. Different in the sense that, uh, Greg, do you want to respond to how honor shame is, uh, how it applies to, to our culture here? Sure. So I think the main difference is um, less of the fear of bringing shame upon others in our community and more about the decisions that I that I make, the things that I say, the, the things I tweet are going to reflect badly on me and it's going to harm my own um, progress, my, my own success. So it's not that we don't have honor shame in the West. It's just so individualized mm-hmm. rather than having it as a community perspective that if I was to do this, it's going to make my family look bad. In the West, we're thinking, whatever, family shmamly. If I get caught cheating on my taxes, it's going to make me look bad. Not and, my family. And I don't doesn't matter about my family because in the West it matters about me. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that, that that's probably the the main nuance. I don't know if you guys want to add anything to that, but that's my take. So then the question was, what can we do what? Are there positive aspects of this that we should implement in the Western world? So the idea of honor shame as a community we're so individualized. Is there stu- is there is there positives about the honor shame culture being a community based focus that the Western world should take in and and learn from, or is the individualization of America a good well, thing? Well, I think the if you look, Ezra, you can speak to this, but mm-hmm. I think uh, the honoring your elders and stuff is something that happens in a, to a much greater extent. I think mm-hmm. in the Asian cultures and in the in the African cultures mm-hmm. now, to to uh, to a length of where it becomes actually a, an issue, I think, where um, the elders actually lord it over the people who are younger than them. But uh, but here we have almost the opposite, where where especially uh, it just seems as the generations move on, the new generations get more and more or less and less respect for their elders over here. That's what I s- see at least. See, I think what has changed in our society, I would I would argue in days gone by, so probably in the days when uh, your grandpa and your grandma yes. were younger, mm-hmm. during those days you had an honor-shame culture that would probably be similar to yep. the one in Africa where your actions have a direct impact um, to your family. So you cared about the things you did, the places you went, and the choices you made because yep. they had a direct impact to the family. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, that was it. But I think in our day, it has changed. And I think the reason it has changed is because in the days gone by, our ethics governed our morals. So what we believe, we believe that, hey, you know, we have to be respectful to your elders and those kinds of things. What we believed then governed how we behaved in public and how we behaved in the community and so on. But now, our morals is what governs mm. our ethics. So our behavior now, the things we are doing right now, oh, I love this, I love that, I love the other. So because I do these things, now I'm moving government, I'm moving society mm. to change uh, our ethics, to, ref- to, to embrace high behavior. And I think um, the further we go down this path, the more dangerous, in my opinion, the more in danger we are as a community because 
can you imagine if our behavior is now what is governing mm. what we believe and what we hold to and what we value my goodness mm. people will believe all sorts of things mm-hmm. and then now who will say right. that's wrong right right i think one of the an, another aspect of this that the honor shame piece from a community perspective it is a helpful paradigm i'm thinking of john when he writes that um people will know that we are christians by our love for one another so the idea that that how we treat others is a reflection of our faith in the eyes of other people it might not be a direct correlation but in, in my mind i was thinking um the more uh, eastern or non-western uh honor shame culture has to do with how I behave reflects on my primary community Mm -hmm. and likewise how we behave as Christians has an impact on how people view our what ought to be our primary community which is the church which is our relationship with other brothers and sisters of the faith and so the the good in the honor shame from a collectivist or a community perspective I think is that we recognize that how we treat others, how we act, actually does have an impact in how people view our primary community, which is is the church. And so I think that's that's how it makes sense that John's commandment or John's words that how we treat one another is going to be the, our greatest apologetic for the watching world mm-hmm. because it makes sense that how you behave is mm-hmm. going to have an impact on how people view the community you're a part of. You see, what, what, what is interesting in Africa is people do things for the sake of the community. So mm-hmm. I work hard, I, I am a good member of society, <laughs> I go to school and I study hard. I do all those things not so that I can um, further myself and my agenda, but it's more my community will mm-hmm. thrive. So the money I make, yeah, it's not just mine, it's for the community. So if you went to Africa and you left your suitcase there and you had maybe two or three pairs of shoes and maybe two or three pairs of jeans, you might find someone whom you're staying with wearing your your jeans. Mm-hmm. And you'd wonder, why are you wearing my clothes? And their response would be, well, you have you had three, so I'm wearing one. What's the big deal? Again, what is yours is ours. Mm. So it's a very, it's a it's a community that thrives. People in the community, um, people in the community live for the community mm. and not for the individual per se. Though that is changing with obviously uh, as as our Western ideology begins mm. to infiltrate Africa. But in the rural Africa, that is basically how people mm. live. And I think, how would we benefit? from an Onashem culture here in North America, at least in the Christian churches, just as Greg said, as we continue to love one another and we live for each other. And so everything I do, it's not just for my sake, but for the sake of the other. Mm. Loving, forgiving, helping, supporting, it's for the sake of the other. Mm. I think people begin to see the gospel, um, basically the the effects of the gospel being lived out uh, in, in society and culture. Uh, just to nuance this a bit too, maybe um, we've talked about all the positives at this point um, about how you know it seeks to be community focused, and we looked at uh, what John said about our greatest apologetic is our love for one another. Um, so there, there obviously is some good uh, to bring implement this in the Western culture with um, more of a community focus instead of uh, us being so individuals or individualized. But there's obviously some negatives too, uh, which we hear about in the news all the time with you know honor killings and that kind of thing. So mm. 
how can this be taken to the extreme where it becomes negative? So are there, are there significant negatives to the honor-shame culture as well? Well, if I think about um, some friends of mine who come from an a Asian culture where the honor-shame thing is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he, he's uh, at seminary wanting to be a pastor. And uh, his, from where he's coming from, um, if he doesn't go back there with uh, not only his degree, but also his ordination in that particular denomination that he's from, if he doesn't go back home with both those things, they don't view him as as having done anything. Like you might as well not have, have you know, as not have all, not even tried because of this. Mm-hmm. And and if he went back in that way, he feels like he would be bringing shame against his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his parents would be upset. His you know relatives they would be like, how dare you? How could you do this to us? Kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so. I think that's a negative. Mm-hmm. I think there's the the loading over. Yes, mm-hmm. the yeah. loading over is the yeah. big is the big negative. Where those in power yeah. uh, or in positions of respect uh, make demands and begin to misuse their authority to suppress mm. or oppress those who are at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. That would be the biggest negative, and that's the big thing that you see in Africa. That's why you have dictators. Why right. is this? Right because those who have authority load it over. And you can see how in a Christian context, this could lead really easily and quickly to legalism, right? The idea that, look, if you don't do everything the exact way we want you to, you're going to make us look bad. And to make us look bad is to go against what John says in his word, right? Because you're supposed to make us look like an appealing community. So, you know, do these things. And we throw Christian liberty totally outside the window and we just live in the land of legalism. So, I mean, obviously there are abuses to mm-hmm. um, the whole idea of the honor-shame in a community context. Yeah, I think you ta- you make a very good point. The whole conversation, discussion around Christian liberty, because again, we in the West will look at Christian liberty and say, hey, you know, this is a Christian liberty issue, so mm-hmm. I'm going to, I- I'd expect you to give me grace, but I'm going to indulge because I enjoy this. Well, you might not. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, if it's, if on and shame is implemented here the wrong way, mm-hmm. I could definitely see a lot of people feeling like, my, you're just whipping me and calling me all sorts of things on a Christian, a Christian liberty issue. Right, right. Great. Well, let's uh, move on to our next question here. Uh, This question has to do with infant baptism. And the question is, why is infant baptism frowned upon in evangelical churches? How come kids can partake in communion before they are at the age of accountability, but not be baptized? I think we should probably clarify Mm -hmm. the the phrasing there, like the, the... Frowned upon in evangelical churches. There's also kind of two separate questions there. Yeah. So, so the, that's first, the first one. <laughs> the first part, uh, frowned upon in evangelical churches. Well, there are evangelical churches that do baptize infants, mm. particularly the Christian Reformed Church, mm-hmm. Presbyterian Church, mm-hmm. uh, and there are there are even Anglican churches that are quite evangelical mm-hmm. and uh, Episcopal down the states, things like that. So, and they will baptize babies. So it's not necess- It's not all evangelicals. Per se, but uh, in our area here, we have a vast majority of uh, Baptist, Pentecostal, Mennonite brethren churches, and we all are uh, 
credo Baptists, so not infant Baptists. Mm. So I, I wouldn't. I would say that uh, in the Reformed camp, generally Reformed, uh, they still practice infant baptism, but they are evangelical. So, but uh, so we are looking at uh, the question. Probably should be worded: um, Why is infant baptism frowned upon in? non-reformed churches yeah or I mean, I mean anabaptism is kind mm. of the historic name given to the movement of people who who believe that b- believers baptism that someone ought to be baptized upon confession of their faith so out of the uh you know around the reformation 16th century the the anabaptist movement out of that comes all kinds of things like baptist churches mennonite brethren churches and pentecostal churches and all that kind of stuff throws flows a little bit out of that stream um so well, Baptist churches, I mean, uh, for instance, if you look at like Spurgeon's Baptists in England, that kind of a thing, that all flowed out of the Reformation. They actually, they wouldn't have wanted to be associated with Anabaptists no, yeah. and the, yeah, the history right. of Anabaptism because there were some really crazy people in that. Totally. So uh, they were just applying the idea of, being, of having baptism um, upon your confession of faith yep. no, to good. the Reformation. That's good. So there's not really a, so there is a difference between Baptist and Anabaptist. Yeah, right. No, that's a good point. So what would be the diff? Why would people who hold to believers' baptism look down on, on infant baptism? Did I, did I ask that question right? Why do people who believe in believers' baptism why would they look down on infant baptism? What do you think? So I think should we give like a a reformed view of infant baptism first? Yeah, sure. I think I think it, it, would be, it would be best yeah. to, to define for people. Okay, so why so, do, why do churches that baptize infants? Why do they right. do that? What basis? Right. So you have you have two different types. You have the Catholic type and and even the Lutheran type, honestly, where when a baby is baptized, they're they're washing away original sin, and then after that, uh, when they repent, they actually re- when later on in life when they repent, they're actually repenting of the sins they've committed. And so in the Catholic Church, you get in this, this penitence or this penance cycle where you every time you sin, you have to go and confess it, and then you have to um, pay penance you have to pay penance and all this stuff, and you're never going to do it all. Hmm. So when you die, you go to purgatory where you pay it off for an indeterminate period of time before or, you get to heaven. Or your or, family members or your family pay it for you or the great, all the great works that the saints have done in the past, right. some of them are actually banked and will pay for your sins. Uh-huh. So, um, when a when a baby is baptized in the Catholic tradition, Roman Catholic Church, uh, it's it's a lot different than when a, a Presbyterian would or a Christian Reformed would baptize their baby. At mm-hmm. that point, they're saying this actually this isn't saving the baby. This is, actually isn't washing away, but this is. Uh, bringing them into the covenant, uh, the covenant family of God, yes, is what they say, and so they say that this is equivalent to the Old Testament practice of circumcision. circumcision. Yes, um, and they have they have scriptures that they point to for that. Um, Romans four is probably one of the most significant passages mm-hmm. for what is that infant baptism. I'm going to pull it up okay. for us here, but I cut you off, Paul. That's okay. Uh, so yeah, the 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 whole idea of baptizing a baby in the Reformed tradition is to bring them into the covenant family of of God, where they will experience the 
um, the where blessings. they'll experience the blessings of the church. And the privileges of yes. being in covenant yeah. family. And so, yes. and this is, so this doesn't mean they're saved. They still, as they get older, they still have to repent of their sins and they still have to make a, a profession of faith. Uh, and then when they do that, uh, then they will receive their first communion. And mm-hmm. so that usually happens in the teen years, uh, usually when somebody does that, or maybe into their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at basically that point, it's, a, it's a confirmation, so to speak. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. I, in, in terms of our practice, what we do, I don't see a big difference between their infant baptism and our dedication of babies. Mm-hmm. I think what we're doing when we're dedicating babies, we're asking the church to watch over the family and to hold the family accountable. And we're, the parents are saying, we're going to raise this child up in the ways of the Lord. So it's very, I mean, all the benefits and blessings that come with infant baptism in the Reformed tradition, I think, are happening mm. with with um, in our tradition, in the MB tradition, or in the Baptist churches, Without when we dedication. dedicate our children, mm-hmm. and just they use water in the Reformed tradition, but they call it baptism, but we wouldn't actually call that baptism. Yeah, so I mean, they call it baptism the same way we would call an adult professing Christian who's now coming to a right. baptism. Yes, they, w- they would view it the same the yes. same way. There, right. there, there is a difference though between what's what's viewed upon as happening in an infant baptism th- theologically from a child dedication. Um, the the difference is that in the infant baptism situation, what you have is that the baptism is a sign of that child's inclusion into the covenant community, whereas. So they, they say that baptism is replacing circumcision as the external sign for the re, in, for the reality that this person is now a part of this covenant community. Yes. Whereas in child dedication, what we have is, I've, I mean, I've told Robin, what, what we should call this parent dedication. We're not saying that this child is now a part of this covenant community in the sense that, that they are um, part of God's elect. What we're saying is that they have Christian parents who would really want the church's help to help raise that child as a Christian and need the help of the church around them to support them and pray for them. So there is something theologically different at the core of what infant baptism is for the Reformed cert- But the camps. Reformed wouldn't say they're necessarily elect either. No, but they're being, ba- they're being included into the covenant community. And this is where the theological language, in all honesty, just doesn't make sense of the biblical texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why... I'm compelled by believers baptism is we have we have in the Old Testament with the sign of circumcision that you can be included into the people through the external marker of circumcision and you aren't doubted as a part of that physical community that ethnic community but baptism isn't the sign of involvement in an ethnic community baptism is the sign of it's an external sign of the internal reality that you are a part of the covenant community, which is the true Israel, which is those who have responded in faith to Jesus Christ. And so this is where the argumentation for infant baptism breaks down is when you look at the texts of the New Testament and say, is this what the New Testament teaches about what baptism is? And I'm compelled that it's actually not. You have to do a lot of theologizing to make it say that. 
Um, so this is where the Reformed traditions will point and say, look, this is the tradition of the church has been to baptize infants, um, that there's a, there's a consistency that you can see theologically between the covenants of one being a, of circumcision being a sign of the old covenant and baptism the sign of a new covenant. So therefore, between history and the, the connection between the signs of how it's the sign of the seal for involvement in the covenant community, therefore, babies should be baptized. And I'm saying that that logical argument, which does have have a compelling logic to it, doesn't actually hold up, in my opinion. So here's Romans 4, 9, 4, 9 through 11, one of the chief texts for um, Pato Baptists. says, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So, Pato Baptist will say, see, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, even though uh, he it's the sign of the faith. And so, for, for our children to receive this sign, it's a sign that the, of the seal that they will have the faith. I totally botched that. So, but I didn't the, say that but, well. but I would say that we look at that and would say that Abraham professed faith at that point. Right. Right. So basically... His, his faith preceded the sign. Yes. But now they're saying that the sign is the seal for... Precedes the faith. The faith. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's where the argumentation breaks down. Yeah. Our, our believer's baptism is like Abraham's circumcision. And that the faith precedes the sign. Mm-hmm. So the question then was, why do people in the... Well, the first one was people, evangelical churches, look down upon... Or frown upon, yeah. Yeah, and well, it's just that we would we would say in Mennonite Brethren tradition and Baptists and Pentecostals, we would just say that when they baptize, and I have quotation marks in my fingers, baptize their babies that it wasn't technically baptism. That would be our view. But our, our appeal wouldn't be to the tradition. Our appeal would be to what makes the most sense of the text. Yes. Right. Mm. Yes. Because I don't actually really care what the traditions are. This is one right. of the chief differentiations between right. the two views, I think, is yes. that one view says this make, this view, believer's baptism, makes the most sense of the scriptures. Right. So okay. I, I want to be clear, though, that I feel like I didn't do a great job representing that viewpoint, so I'm sure we have some Reformed listeners who feel like I botched some description somewhere. Uh, I mean, I, I have had to talk about this before, but I've had to talk about it in a little bit more systematic way, so as I was describing it, I think I was conflating some things, so I'm, I'm quite happy to have people correct here and there, and we can continue the conversation where we need to. But Was there another part to that? There is. Uh, I just also want to say, though, that I think the language of looked down upon or frowned upon isn't necessarily accurate to the way that we view our Reformed brothers and sisters. It's not like we're frowning upon them or looking down upon them. It's just that our theological convictions are different and the way we read the scriptures are a lot different. It's not like we're so I think, think they're I think worse though, off. I, so I we think would, though, yeah, but yeah. but I think those who come from that tradition. Yep. So if someone mm. was uh, baptized as an infant and then walks into, um, say, uh, an Anabaptist, like a, a Mennonite church, like Mennonite our church. church, like our church. <laughs> uh, so 
to what extent can they be involved in ministry or in leadership and things like that and and how then do we do we treat them and i think they those who may have been baptized as infants would say oh they feel treated like second class citizens so to speak mm-hmm. or they they they're not given free reign it's almost like um you there's something else you need to do here first so to speak so it it may feel like mm-hmm. they are being treated as uh, second class or looked down upon so to speak again depending on whom they talk to and the response that they may have received mm-hmm. yeah great so there's a second part to this question um and it's also going to need a little bit of nuancing from you guys it's how come kids can partake in communion before they are at the age of accountability but not be baptized uh, so, well do we have a, do we have an official position no. on when we should take communion? I don't think no so. because we, I know that I mean in my family and I know I think generally we would say and I would encourage people to not take communion until they've been baptized because mm-hmm. if you're not old enough if you if you can't have that profession of faith to say that I want to be baptized then you aren't old enough to say I have the professional faith to take communion either. To know what communion is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that's so, more of a. Um, I mean, I'm communion isn't a snack, right? So no, when it's, it's when it's past noon and your kids are, "Mommy, I need a snack," and communion comes by, you don't give them a couple of pieces of the cracker just because they're hungry. Like uh, this isn't. I'm not saying people actually do that, but this isn't, that's not what it's for. It's what it's there for is for the body of believers, people who have put their faith and their trust in Christ mm. to uh, engage in, uh, in this, in this um, mm-hmm. command that Christ gave to remember, uh, to commemorate his death mm-hmm. until he returns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't, I don't hear you saying that that's a hard and fast rule that if you haven't been baptized, you can't take communion. I hear you saying more no. that that when you are of the age to be able to decide that you want to be baptized because you know that it's the symbol of your faith, of, of the fact that you have faith in Christ. Right. That is a good indication that you are old enough to understand what's happening. You should be you should be working towards baptism. Like, so for instance, if you're at Northview you should know that next time baptism comes around, I'm getting baptized. Right. Uh, or next time I have the opportunity to be baptized at whatever local church I'm a part of, then, and you're going to do that, then, okay, right. you're ready to take communion. Like, we don't have mm-hmm. a rule on how old you need to be to be baptized or how old you have to be to partake in communion. It has to do with the, the discernment of people who are in leadership and alongside of the parents to see how legitimate is this child's faith. And if it is like, man, wow, they totally understand the gospel. They, they totally know what's going on here. And of course, they there's more to learn. Um, we will baptize kids as young as, I don't know, 10? I, I don't know what the, I don't want to even throw out a number because I don't know what the number is. We don't yeah, have don't it. It's different either. for each kid, right? It's different for well, each my daughter's. Kid. My daughter's ten, yep. and she's getting baptized this in this next round. So there you go. So she's she's gone through the class and the interview and all this, and and uh, she has given a credible profession of faith, and she understands the gospel, loves Jesus. 
So yes. So that's going to be different for each kid though, right? Because totally. some yeah. kids are going to come to faith at nine and yeah. they're not going to have a full understanding of, of what's going on because maybe their parents are bringing them to church now and they're not going to get it until they're 13 but also, but, or but, whatever. But, but, but again, but again, I think I want us to be mm. very careful with the language yeah. you're using here because mm-hmm. are we saying, are yeah. we saying the only person who can get baptized is one who has a full understanding of the gospel? Mm. Because I think, right, yeah. I think the, the adults who mm. I came to church three or four times and I heard the message preached, and it wasn't necessarily a direct gospel, uh, like a, a message that really unpacked the nuances of the gospel. This is why Jesus came to die, whatever. But I just heard the gospel, and the Spirit of God moved and convicted me of sin, and I came to, to repentance mm-hmm. and greater faith. And so now, yes, I may not mm-hmm. be able to articulate the gospel and actually show you yeah. chapter and verse, mm-hmm. right? but I know I'm a sinner, and I need God's mercy. Question mm-hmm. then becomes, right. in the biblical text, such an, such an individual gets baptized, mm-hmm. like right away. That person yeah. gets baptized, yeah. but then we have created a system where we want to make sure that the person actually understands what this is and what this is not. And so I want us to be very careful to say, okay, yeah, baptism is there for believers. Yeah. And yes, we want to make sure that the people who are getting baptized, actually, you know what you're doing. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you need to be a theologian mm-hmm. yeah. to, to actually be baptized. No, you need to have faith in Christ. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because one of the major reasons people won't be baptized, they'll, they'll have come to faith mm-hmm. as a child. They will, maybe they're a teenager in high school, maybe they're in college, maybe they're a little bit older. They've never been baptized because they never feel like they know enough. And so they, de- they delay obedience for their lack of knowledge for for the the insecurity of their own knowledge of the nuances mm. of the Christian faith mm. and that is a category in baptism that makes zero sense mm. because baptism is the sign of the initiation into the life of following Jesus and yes. so because of that of course we want to, to to do what we can to make sure that this person knows what they're doing but that's different than than making them have to go through an extensive theological questionnaire to show mm-hmm. that they really understand the nuances of of what's going on in salvation and the order of salvation, all that kind of stuff. Because mm-hmm. it's the sign of their inclusion into the community, which happens when they profess their faith. So mm-hmm. this is a great opportunity because there's people that listen to this podcast who haven't been baptized. And you should be baptized. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he commands you to be baptized as a sign that you are following him and as a sign to other people that this is how you want to live your life. So yeah. you need to be baptized. Yes. And then and then upon uh, uh, after your baptism, you know, you commit your life now to, to understanding the gospel more mm. and to ordering mm. the affairs of your life to reflect that you actually believe. Right. And I'm going to, okay, I'm going to throw this out there. For all of our our friends who are from the Reformed tradition that are coming to our church, I I want you to hear me say that. I I want you to be baptized. I I want you to be baptized upon the profession of your faith because I think that that's what the Bible commands. And if you're coming to this church and you're wanting to sit under the teaching of this church and have the leaders of this church hold you accountable, I think that this is something that you need to seriously think about, that, that this is what it means to follow Jesus and to, to invest to invest the time in studying the scriptures. And I'm personally happy to chat through with anyone who's listening who has this as an issue or, or something they want to work through more. 
if you were baptized as an infant and you were confirmed and now you're coming to Northview and you want to get more involved, but you're getting the handbrake pulled on you because you're not baptized as a believer, I'm quite happy to sit down and chat with you and have some conversations to help see if we can get you to the point where you would be joyful in obeying Jesus and being baptized upon profession of your faith. <laughs> and what I do you think? think? Do Is you that think, too strong? <laughs> that was a little do, too strong. But. Do you think though? Do you think there's an element in it though of um, if if even if you've been baptized as an infant in the Reformed tradition and you're coming here and you want to be a member here, an element just of coming under the authority oh, of totally. the local church that you're in and following their recommendations for your uh, walk with Christ for your sanctification. Totally. Because, uh, because yeah, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not a slight against your parents who baptized you. It's not a slight against the CRC it's, or, or the uh, Presbyterian Church. All it is, basically, is you're saying, saying, listen, I love my church that I'm in. Mm. I love Northview. I love the teaching. I love the pastors. I, I love the leaders. I want to be accountable to them. And I want to mm. be held accountable by, the, by them and their recommending, based on Scripture, that I get baptized. And I think that's a good argument to get baptized. Because the opposite, I think, is is an interesting scenario where someone would say, I want to be a part of this community. I want to be, I want to hold the leaders accountable and be held accountable by them. I want to do Christian life with these people. I want to listen to them and what they have to say about the scripture, but not about baptism. To me, that's a really weird way to start it off because what happens down the road if there's another issue that needs to be brought up in mm-hmm. our lives that someone's going to bring the Bible to us and say what does the Bible say about this and how are you going to respond if your first move was I'm not going to listen to you how are those future conversations going to go when, yeah. when those conversations come up about hey here's something that we need to work through and you know what I mean I just think it's an interesting scenario for someone to say I want to be really held accountable by this church but you can't touch my view of baptism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. I should, I need, I'll clarify one thing because mm-hmm. I feel like I was too strong. Yes, you were. I, I believe, I believe <laughs> that my reformed brothers and sisters are actually that, that they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. Totally. And yeah. I, I'm not saying that, that their faith is less than or that, that they are worse followers of, of Jesus. What I'm saying is that over the issue of baptism, there's a, there's a conviction that I hold because of what I think the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to come to Northview and want Northview to be your home church, I think that you need to seriously consider that believer's baptism is something that you should consider. And I'm happy to chat with them if they want to chat further mm-hmm. about this. Okay, so if you need to chat some more, it is G. Harris at northview.org that's right right that's right great well um that's all we have for today and you can email eocote <laughs> and also just if you want to just to say hi and say hi ezra thanks for telling greg he was too hard now i feel like i don't actually have to be baptized as a believer because you said he was being too harsh <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i think i think for for another time the conversations that we someone listening to you would say okay so you mean to say greg all the uh, reformed people and the presbyterian people are disobedient because they are baptizing their infants i think if we believe that baptism is upon profession of faith mm-hmm. and that then someone has sinning. and that hasn't been someone hasn't been baptized upon profession of faith mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what category you want to put it into. 
But this is a, a conviction <laughs> that churches of the believer baptism side actually hold that that there is and passionately so right others yes. So, are there areas of everyone's life where we're being disobedient? Yes. Mm-hmm. So listen, and like, this is one. There's I certain, think this is one for some people. Look, I'm not going to apologize. Churches, <laughs> there are certain churches that would like certain Baptist churches that would bar. Uh, people who are infant baptized from yes. receiving the Lord's table. This is why. Such I, as one, one totally. major one is uh, probably one of the biggest or most influential Baptist churches in the U.S. is um, Capitol Hill Baptist Church with Mark mm. Dever mm. as the pastor. And, and he, he would not give communion to uh, his Presbyterian brothers, such as Tim Keller and Ligon Duncan, mm. who, if they would come to his church, he would say, no, you can't have communion here. And and now, that doesn't me- stop those guys, though, from doing ministry together. They're, right. uh, they're all in the right. Gospel Coalition together. They yep. go to the, all these conferences, speak together. Uh, they will teach at each other's seminaries, things like this. But uh, when it comes to that, you have some people that mm. actually bar them from the table. But I don't. we don't do that here. See, maybe that's a sign of my own inconsistency with the issue. But I, I don't actually think that that needs to happen like I, I think that once someone can profess faith in Christ that they're welcome to the table that's why mm. earlier I, I so said we, yeah so we're back at the that's why earlier I said I don't I don't think it's a legalistic matter right. of you have to be baptized yes. before you receive communion that right that, so I'm I'm quite happy to continue to serve my reformed brothers and sisters in the faith communion mm-hmm. and say welcome to the table we're all one under Christ yeah. and yet say I think you need to be baptized mm-hmm. Yes, I think the conversation is broad, but you're right. Hmm. I think it's a good place to pause. All right, Poochie yeah. D. Yeah, as you can tell, what Greg you, gets real fired say? up about this. I've just had to speak about it a lot. Like I, I've yes. done a few sermons on it. I've had to speak about it in different contexts. I've had to study it. I, I don't feel like I described the reform view very well this time, which I'm a little bit sad by. I've done a sermon on it where I thought I did a better job. Um, so if you're interested in watching that sermon, you can email me and I'll send you the link and then we can talk from there. But um, It'd be an interesting conversation to pick up again. But if the, that is assuming that listeners would like to hear the banter back and forth. Yeah, we don't have to do it on the extra podcast. Sure. But it can be in right. another venue. Sure. Great. Sweet. That's all we have for today. Email extra at northy.org if you have questions. Uh, this is Poochie D signing off as your silent producer. Bye.